Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned that this podcast contains body language of the modern and early modern varieties, so plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice that you can make, but don't say we didn't warn you. You guys all know how to pronounce my name. I mean, we've struggled, so please give us the official line. <laughs> it's um, it's meow. Yeah. It's like saying yeah with an M on it, so meow. Yeah. Meow. Great. Great. Thank meow. you. Got it. Or like meow without the owl. <laughs> meow. 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 Great. Meow. Cool. That's actually very helpful. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Uh, it's a problem. Uh, yep. Especially since you've been going through our back catalog. <laughs> yeah. I was like, shit, she's probably heard us struggle with her name. Super yeah. embarrassing time when I didn't know any better. I actually haven't, I haven't managed to make it any pop any episodes where you've mentioned me yet so i oh, okay good. let's let's hope that you skip the one where i just <laughs> mispronounce your name all over the place Welcome to the Hurley Burley Shakespeare Show. We are your hosts, Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock, and together we are Hamlet. That and is I my line. line. How Sorry. dare you? I'm so angry. I, just, I quit the podcast by forever. No, no more Hamlet, just the Hwa. But we're just getting to the good stuff. All right. So, like Aubrey already said, we're Hamlet. <laughs> Uh, and this week we're talking Cymbeline, and we have a super special awesome guest. We do. This week we have Mia Gosling with us. Hi. Hi. So tell us about yourself. Oh, okay. I am the artist and author of Good Tickle Brain, the world's foremost and possibly only stick figure Shakespeare <laughs> webcomic, uh, which I've been doing for about five years, about two years full time now. Uh if you don't know it, I do Shakespeare stick figure comics. That's kind of kind of my thing. So, yep. And it's yep. awesome. That's me. Yeah, we love them. They're so insanely clever. So, Thank and you. and just delightful. Hmm. Thanks. So, got it got me through grad school and it's still getting me through grad school. <laughs> I'm so glad cuz I'm I'm doing a lot of grad school cuz I hate myself and also love myself. <laughs> it's a thing to do. Mm. Grad yeah. school yeah gotta, gotta get that phd yeah. thank you so much everyone for listening we hope you enjoy the show and come back for more uh every week we will discuss a different play by our favorite guy william elizabeth shakespeare at what we like to call the 101 level yeah so that's introductory stuff which is everything you need to know to have a general understanding of the play and its major themes plus some other cool stuff that you will get nowhere else like our always correct and fact-checked opinions can you fact check an opinion? I mean, no. All right. <laughs> I am the fact checker of my own opinions. Great. Right? Okay. Right? Good. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, but this week we also have Mia's opinions about Cymbeline. Um, and I can't wait to hear the words you have to say about the uh, adaptation, the film adaptation that you watched yeah. like a trooper. Yeah. I, I have worked very hard the last couple of weeks to turn myself into an expert about Cymbeline because honestly, I, I've i seen it on a stage twice. Wow. I didn't read it until I 
said, I'll do this podcast. And then I was like, oh, crap, now I better read it. Uh, <laughs> so it's, it's, I'm approaching it from a, a fairly fresh-eyed angle. Um, but That's great. Yeah, I, yeah. I suffered through some stuff for you guys. I hope you appreciate Man, that. That's real. I we mean, do. we did, uh, my drama class this week did a quote-unquote staged reading of it on Monday night, question mark. Uh, so I also have suffered <laughs> for this. <laughs> It, there's there's a lot of suffer to go around. Then I had a, a two and a half hour seminar on it, which was an experience. Whoa. Yeah. See, there's definitely a reason I didn't pursue further grad school. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Grad school does have a way of killing the things you love. No. It's rough in like a really strange, sadistic way that you're like, that you're paying for. I don't know. Well, <laughs> technically they're paying me for it now. That's true. That's true. Technically. <laughs> right. Anyway, right. let's move okay. on. So before we jump into any of that, uh, we are word nerds. And each week we will draw a random device from our handy dandy ASC rhetorical device flashcards. And don't worry, Jess, I've taken out all of the boring ones. Good. So, okay. Just so you know. Good. So for actors and scholars, knowing these rhetorical devices helps us recognize patterns in Shakespeare's language so that we can gain a better understanding of what's being said and how it's being said. Basically, it helps us understand actors, not actors, but characters through their speech tactics. All right, draw a card, you Banbury cheese. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Now you get to tell me, this stack is rather thin now, but you get to tell me where to stop it. And that's basically how we draw the card remotely. Okay, so here we go. Stop. Okay. Good enough. Ooh, Jess has been waiting for this one forever. Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god! Is it Epizuxus? No, it's Epistrophe. Oh my god, that's what I meant. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. So you have to say it, and then I have to tell my story, and then we can move right. on. I'm so excited. Yes. Oh my okay. god. Okay, I'm gonna knock everything oh. over on my desk. Go ahead. Go okay. ahead. Okay. Epistrophe. E p i s t r o p h e. It is the repetition of endings. Yes, it is ending a series of lines, phrases, clauses, or sentences with the same word or words. For example, the Dromeo of Ephesus from the Comedy of Errors. Tis dinner time, quoth I, my gold, quoth he. The meat doth burn, quoth I, my gold, quoth he. Will you come home, quoth I, my gold, quoth he. Where is the thousand marks I gave thee, villain? The pig, quoth I, is burned, my gold, quoth he. There you go. You're welcome. Ta-da. Okay, Jess, tell us your story about okay. repeated endings. Okay. All right. Okay. So I've been sitting on this for I don't know how long. So long. But this is the best pickup line I have ever said. Also, apologies to Scott if you're listening. I'm going to tell the story. But I'm not going to say his last name because we love Scott and we protect his identity. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Um, so my friend Scott, many, many, many years ago when I was but a wee first year MLIT student trying to learn all the rhetoric terms, gave me the best way to remember epistrophe that I could have because it was it's a thing that I do just in my language all the time. And I was like, hey, Scott, it's nice to see you, Scott. How are you, Scott? And he was like, epistrophe. And I was like, oh, okay. And it clicked, right? So then Scott went away and then Scott came back and I was by then single. Uh, and I said to Scott, hey, Scott, why don't you come over to my apartment and we can epistrophe all night long? Because it's the repetition of endings. 
and I feel like I probably don't need to fill in any further blanks. <laughs> Get out. Yeah, he turned me down. <laughs> but I think Aww. maybe only because he had a girlfriend? I don't know. Not like only because he had a girlfriend. <laughs> like, not that that's not a good reason. But it, I mean, it didn't work, uh, but I was still like super proud of it. Mm. Um, so thanks, Scott. You're awesome. <laughs> And now all of us will remember epistrophe as a pickup line. That's how, yes. We'll all remember epistrophe as a pickup line. (laughs) If you're a nerd and you're talking to another nerd and you both know what epistrophe is, I stand by the fact that this line will get you where you want to go. I like, I think it works as long as both of you are available, you know? Hmm. Yes. Great. (laughs) well that was epistrophe well that was epistrophe oh and that was epistrophe okay moving on it's now time for your burbage break with master master hamlet the pickup artist (laughs) putting that on my business cards immediately um all right so short and sweet this week deus ex machinas they're totally a thing so a deus ex machina is like the god machine or the god device essentially is what that translates into um but it's a plot device whereby there's a a seemingly unsolvable problem in a story that is sort of suddenly resolved by an unexpected and unlikely occurrence um in such a fashion as to seem totally convenient and uh not at all spontaneous and that's usually like the descendants descendants descending descending of a god to solve all of your problems. It comes from Greek tragedy. So like, I don't know, every fucking other thing in drama comes from the Greeks, uh, where a machine is used to bring actors playing gods onto the stage. So that's where we get like the god machine. Shakespeare uses the device in Cymbeline, which is why we're talking about it today, but also in As You Like It, Pericles and The Winter's Tale. So it's sort of interesting that that's three of the four romances. And then As You Like It, it's also in like some other plays uh, and even in some other stories, like Lord of the Flies and Lord of the Rings and Oliver Twist, question mark, has a, a deus ex machina. So that's what that is. They're totally a thing. They happen in drama. They happen in four of Shakespeare's plays. Uh, you're welcome. The end. That's that's what I got. Yeah, I, I would definitely say the biggest, like most elaborate instance of it in Shakespeare I would say happens in this play. I mean, it's mm. Jupiter on an eagle. I was going to say the, the harpy in the tempest is always one to make tech directors wince, but that's not really a deus ex machina. Right. It's just a big freaking bird. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which is yes. not the same thing as a deus ex machina. <laughs> not all big freaking birds are deus ex machinas. But some deus ex machinas are big freaking birds. Yeah. Correct. So, yeah. Well, there it is, folks. Yeah. That was your Burbage break with Master Master Hamlet. You're welcome. And <laughs> and speaking of Deus Ex Machina, that's like a perfect transition to our five-word unhelpful titles. Uh, before we launch into our summaries, we always give you those. Uh, mine is Jupiter on an Eagle, y'all. Yeah, good. Uh, I've got Shakespeare in a blender, kids. And mine is Voyeurism Leads to Family Reunions. Yes. Yes, it does. It's very accurate. Not helpful, but accurate. It's 
what we're going for. Oh, <laughs> Lord. So, some dramatis personae, but only the really important ones. And it is kind of a long list this week because this play is bananas pants yeah. and it has a bunch of different but also really important characters and plot lines it's almost everyone this is almost just the entire dt yeah well i mean but and but you can't get through the summary without talking about these people that's the thing well <laughs> i mean you can i know i know mad does because you yeah. know you do three panel shakespeare but i, like, I so. can get through this play talking about only one person but you know that's <laughs> i know i know you're the queen of condensing stuff so first we have Cymbeline, who's the king of Britain and who this play is named after. So weird, right? We have Queen, who is his wife and has no name, but she's the queen. She sure is. Then there's Clotten, her idiotic son from a previous marriage. There's also Imogen, who's Cymbeline's daughter by his first wife. There's Posthumus Leonatus, who is Imogen's husband and who is also a little bit of an idiot. Then there's Belarius, a banished lord. He's disguised as a Welsh guy named Morgan. So we also have uh, Arvaragus and Guadarius, who are Cymbeline's long-lost sons, who are out in Wales with Belarius slash Morgan, and out in Wales with Belarius slash Morgan, they are called Polydor and Cadwall. Meanwhile, across the seas, we have Iacomo, a pervy Italian. <sighs> Those pervy Italians. So pervy. Then there's Caius Lucius, a Roman general. We also have Pisanio, who is faithful servant to Posthumus, who we said like eight minutes ago. And there's Cornelius the Doctor, who is probably low-key my favorite character in this entire play. Oh my god, girl, same. He's great. Yeah. yeah. He's really fun. I want a play <laughs> a that's character. just Cornelius. Yeah, just Cornelius, like, being slightly bitchy. I love him. <laughs> yes. <laughs> 10 out of 10 would watch that play. Alright, so why is this place so goddamn popular newsflash it's not really but Mia's gonna tell us why it should be right yeah why why Cymbeline be, well, okay Cymbeline is one of those plays that almost nobody knows nobody's heard of it but most people have actually heard a very famous passage of text in it which is fear no more the heat of the sun elegy which gets trotted out at funerals all the time and uh despite explicitly not being sung in the play it gets sung all the time it's been set to Lots of different tunes. So uh, even if you've never heard of Cymbeline before, you've very possibly heard something from Cymbeline. Like Jess says, this is Shakespeare in a blender. Uh, Shakespeare basically took all the best plot devices from all his other plays. You've got girls just as boys. You've got false accusations of adultery, star-classed lovers, potions, sleeping potions, poisons, dynastic power struggles, invasions, battles, ghosts, Jupiter on an eagle. And Shakespeare basically put all these plot devices in the Jacobian writer's equivalent of a blender and then poured out a sweet, sweet Cymbeline smoothie. Um, <laughs> it's often described as Cymbeline's, uh, as Shakespeare's fairy tale, which is also absolutely true because it literally has the evil stepmother. Right? Another reason yeah. why this play should be popular is Imogen is the main character. Uh, she's one of the few female characters in the canon to have the most lines in her play, uh, along with Rosalind from As You Like It and Helena from All's Well, which I think I think those are the only other ones that are the line leaders in their play. Uh, but it's 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 a it's a pretty good company to be in. Uh, she's a fantastic character, and I'm going to get on to her more. Um, one of Shakespeare's strongest heroines, and the play should totally be called Imogen, not Cymbeline. And in my opinion, the final scene of Cymbeline is the best scene in the entire canon. Uh, it's a hysterical ride in which about a billion different plot threads are all woven together, and it's hilarious and cathartic, and 
moving and sentimental and incredibly satisfying. And that is why Cymbeline should be uh, a lot more popular than it is. Thank you. And you're not wrong. Um, uh, that mean, final scene is cuckoo. It's terrible. It's though. Fan- but it's, it's fantastic. I don't know. It's like, but it's so bad. It's good. I think you're right. It's like just revelations it's, happening all over the place. It's top quality entertainment. Like it's, I, that's, yeah. I would watch that scene any day. Oh God. Yeah. I never want to sit through it ever. It's just, okay. it's because it, it, literally it's, it's like 600 lines long. And all they do is tell the audience literally the the plot of the last four acts that they just sat through. Like, are you kidding me? Best. Yeah. <laughs> Makes well, me bonkers. Jess is also a little biased because she and I were in a production of Cymbeline together in the MFA. And it was, the, for many reasons, that production was a struggle um, mm-hmm. for us as a company. Yep. But also, I do have vivid memories of like trying to block that scene. Oh, I imagine it's a nightmare hours. to produce. Yeah. It must be a real nightmare. Yeah. To, any, any, yeah. Well, we'll Just, get on to the, the final yeah. scene later. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, <laughs> yeah. I've got more words on that. <laughs> Good. Great. Summary time. Nerd. So we are now going to summarize Cymbeline for you in a segment that this week we're calling Oh Posthumous, Alas, Where Is Thy Summary? Good title. Well, you wrote it, so (laughs) I'm glad you like it. All right, I'm going to take this away then. Okay, hang on, hang on, hang on. All right, I've I've got a clock and Aubrey, get the lead out. Dude, I, okay. I'm shutting up. We're going to do this. All right. (laughs) Yeah, whatever you're ready. Take it away. All right. Act one. Imogen and Posthumus, who is poor, have eloped. Cymbeline is mad about it. By which mad I mean angry. Uh, So is Clotten, Imogen's stepbrother, because he wanted to marry Imogen. Posthumus is banished and flees to Italy. Imogen gives him a ring to remember her by, and he gives her a bracelet. Posthumus makes it to Rome, where he makes a wager with Iacomo about Imogen's chastity, because women, am I right? Uh, meanwhile, the king gets what she thinks are deadly drugs from Dr. Cornelius, but because he mistrusts her, he swaps them for a sleeping potion instead. The queen gives the poison, actually a sleeping potion, to Pisanio and says they are healing drugs because evil stepmothers, am I right? Iacomo shows up and introduces himself to Imogen by slandering her husband, which does not have the effect he wanted mainly for Imogen to throw himself at her. Her, herself at him. <laughs> this is harder than it looks, guys. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Act two. Clotten wants to fight someone, and even his own servants make fun of him out in the open. And since Yakimo can't flirt his way into Imogen's pants, he hides in a trunk, sneaks into her bedroom while she's asleep, peeps at her boobs, and takes her bracelet. Gross. Clotten shows up the next morning and serenades Imogen, and she's like, Boy, bye. I can't find my bracelet. And back in Rome, everyone thinks there will be war between Rome and Britain soon. Yakimo shows Posthumus the, bracelets he, the bracelet he got and tells him about the birthmark on Imogen's breast as proof that he defiled her chastity. And Posthumus believes it and then goes on a misogynistic rant because he a dummy. Act three, Clotten acts as a, like a fool, which causes a declaration of war between Rome and Britain. Pisanio gets a letter from Posthumus ordering him to murder Imogen. He gives her a fake letter telling Imogen that Posthumus will be at Milford Haven and Imogen decides to go there. In Wales, Valerius waxes political about their country life, but Guiderius and Arviragus aren't having it. <laughs> Wales is boring, they say. It's not. It's great. Valerius tells the audience that he stole the boys from Cymbeline in revenge for his own banishment, but now he loves them like his own sons. Pisanio eventually spills the beans to Imogen about the real reason they're schlepping around Milford Haven, i.e. murder. Imogen's real sad about it. 
He suggests that she fake her death and then dress as a boy and offer her services to Caius Lucius, the Roman general. He gives her the healing drugs he got from the queen, a.k.a. a sleeping potion, a.k.a. the queen thinks it's poison, in case she gets seasick on a trip to Rome, and then hightails it home without her. Meanwhile, Cymbeline has only just figured out that Imogen is gone. Clotten vows to kill Posthumus and rape Imogen, because he's that kind of guy, and sets out to Milford Haven dressed like Posthumus for reasons. Imogen gets lost, ends up in Valerius' cave. When discovered, she pretends to be a boy. She immediately vibes with Guderius and Iberagus, and they decide to adopt her as their new brother because they are the cutest. They really are, though. In Act 4, Imogen feels yucky, and she takes the healing potion Pisanio gave her, hoping it will cure her, but, spoiler alert, it won't because it's a sleeping potion, so she falls asleep. Clotten shows up in Wales, ready to kick ass and take names. Belarius recognizes him from Cymbeline's court and thinks Clotten has finally tracked him down. Newsflash, it's not all about you, Belarius. Okay. Uh, Guiderius stays behind to distract Clotten while Belarius and Arvaragus run away. Clotten acts a fool and Guiderius cuts his head off. Meanwhile, Arvaragus has discovered Imogen in the cave, who is fake dead. They lay her body next to the decapitated Clotten's body and they sing a sad song that's real cute, whatever. After they leave, Imogen wakes up and she thinks she's not lying next to Headless Posthumus because Clotten is still wearing his clothes and that's how it works in plays. Then she joins up with Caius Lucis. Elsewhere in Wales, Guiderius and Arvaragus can no longer resist the call to arms and insist on joining the fight between Britain and Rome. Valerius grudgingly goes with them. Act 5! This is where all the fun stuff happens! Posthumus hears the news about Imogen's death and resolves to die in the battle between Rome and Britain. Uh, there's a big battle! Uh, Posthumus captures Iacomo, Cymbeline is captured by the Romans, but then gets rescued by Guiderius, Arvaragus, and Valerius, and this random peasant they've just met, who is Posthumus in disguise. The Britons win! Posthumus gets captured by other Britons who thinks he's a Roman, and they take him to prison. Uh, Jupiter arrives riding on a damn eagle, Caw-caw! and says that everything will be okay, leaving a book behind to prove it. Cymbeline tries to sort things out after the battle. Oh no, the evil queen is dead! Uh, all the prisoners are brought out, including Iacomo and Caius Lucius. Lucius asks for mercy for a squire. Uh, Imogen in disguise, and Cymbeline grants it, uh, as well as anything else that Imogen in disguise might ask for. People start recognizing other people they thought were dead, but no one says anything. Uh, Yakimo confesses to being a rapey jerk. Uh, Posthumus loses his shit and hits Imogen when she tries to pull him off Yakimo. Uh, Pisanio jumps in and reveals a disguise. Guderius brags about beheading Clotten. Valerius reveals himself to save Guderius. Uh, Imogen forgives Posthumus. Cymbeline gets all his kids back and pays tribute to Rome anyway. Thanks, Jupiter! That How many minutes was that? Four minutes and 40 seconds. Way yeah! to go, everybody. Right. Good good yeah. work, team. I, I would just like to say that this summary took a lot longer than my summary of Cymbeline, which goes like this. A princess is falsely accused of adultery, dresses up as a boy, finds her long-lost brothers, wakes up next to a headless corpse, and was mistakenly punched by her husband. Done. Boom. Way to go. You're queen. Genius. Yep. That's what I do. You are the reigning queen. I, I yes. am very short. <laughs> I'm not, actually. I'm actually quite tall, but but the, my work is very short. <laughs> What's that they say about brevity being the soul of wit? Something that like is, that. That is you, yes. I yeah. feel like I heard that somewhere one time before. Yeah. Very catchy. Really smart said it. All right. So, some tips and tidbits about the text. I mean, we're just going to turn it over to you. I Go got, for I it. Got, I got stuff to say. Yeah, um, you do. First of all, I'm going to talk about uh, Imogen. We've been we've been calling her Imogen, but there's actually a big controversy about this. Uh, there's a lot of evidence that suggests that the character was actually called Inogen with oh. ends. Oh God! Uh, I want to jump in I so know. hard. Weird. Um, the name Imogen was apparently not in use during this time. Uh, there's no evidence of it being in use at this time. And in 1611, 
uh, a guy went and saw Cymbeline and wrote about it, and, and he specifically calls the heroine Inogen as opposed to Imogen. Uh, Inogen also has connotations of, of innocence, uh, the innocent one, uh, paralleling the later assumption of the name Fidele by Inogen and its connotations of faithfulness. Uh, so it's speculated that maybe compositors made a mistake by changing Inogen to Imogen at some point. Uh, of the two productions I've seen of it, one used Imogen and one used Inogen. I kind of like Inogen because I like the name parallels with Fidele, but this is not going to be the Shakespeare Hill that I die on. So <laughs> Imogen's cool. Um, so so in, the, in the Hollandshed text, which is one of the sources for this play, she's referred to as Inogen with two N's. And Valerie Wayne, who is the Arden, not the Arden, the editor of the Arden Three, Cymbeline, says that the the switch from N to M is probably a scribal or compositorial error based on counting minims. And last time we talked about minims on this podcast, we went down a fucking hole. So I'm not gonna subject our listeners to that again. But if you're interested, it's Midsummer 201, and we went some places you remember that aubrey i do i do i know all about minims now yeah i think yeah i think i do we went some places with minims so i did i did a poll of all my many many shakespeare friends and almost all of them said they prefer emojin yep. with the m yep so hmm. that's that's what i'll call her in this but uh yeah hmm. spicy stuff moving on i'm just gonna like give you random things that i think are cool about cymbeline do it uh yeah. One of the things I like the most about Cymbeline is that it is literally Polonius's player joke in Hamlet, where he describes the players as the best actors in the world, either for tragedy, comedy, history, pastoral, pastoral, comical, historical, pastoral, tragical, historical, tragical, comical, historical, pastoral, scene, individual, or poem, unlimited. Cymbeline is literally tragical, comical, historical, pastoral. It has all of those things. The tragical is the, the wager plot uh, involving Imogen, Postumus, and Iacomo, which, due to my very, very uh, heavy researching ahead of this podcast, <laughs> uh, was lifted from another source, as Shakespeare was prone to do. In this case, the Decameron, which is written in the 14th century Ooh, yeah. uh, by an Italian, Giovanni Boccaccio. So this has all the same elements, the, the wager on Imogen's chastity, the creepy guy hiding in the trunk, the wrong woman disguising herself as a boy. That story ends happily, as Cymbeline does, but it's really striking when you look at the text how close everything comes to becoming a classic Shakespearean tragedy. Uh, you've got Romeo and Juliet. Imogen and Postumus are separated after marrying against their parents' wishes. Well, her parents' wishes, his are dead. You've got Othello. Iacomo is basically uh, a baby Iago, uh, falsely accusing Postumus, or falsely convincing Postumus of his wife's infidelity. Unlike Iago, Iacomo doesn't really intend for Postumus to kill Imogen, but that's what almost happens. You can also see some like King Lear stuff, stuff going on between Cymbeline, the Queen, and Imogen about power and that dynamic between father and daughter. There's a lot of almost tragedy going on here, but it's constantly being sort of redeemed right at the brink. Um, comical. Cymbeline's really funny. Uh, at Is least. It? It... Okay. <laughs> I've seen it live twice. All right. That's more than me. And, and both of those were like up there, some of my top theatrical experiences, just lovely. Part of it is the ludicrousness of the plot. Like you can't take the plot seriously. It's so silly. Yeah. Uh, but there's also like a lot of extra wit and humor in there. I, I love the second Lord. 
uh, who is one of Plotin's sidekicks. Yeah. But he spends all his time on stage, like telling the the audience what an idiot Clotten is, in case we couldn't figure it yeah. out for ourselves. Right. Plotin yeah. will say something, and then the second Lord will be like, "He's a jerk." There are also there are lots of cool asides in Cymbeline. I, one of my favorite lines in the play is when the the queen has received the not poison uh, from the doctor, and she's planning <laughs> to poison Pisanio. Yes, I and love the doctor, this line. The doctor just turns to the audience and he says, I do not like her, which is just so fantastic. <laughs> there's, so there's lots of little bits of that humor in there. And then, as I've mentioned, uh, the final scene is just nonstop hysteria in all senses of the word. It's hysterical funny. It's hysterical chaotic. It's hysterical out of control. Um, it, 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 it's a relentless buildup of one improbable revelation after another, after another, until my hero, the doctor, chimes in again with my favorite line in the play, which is, oh, gods, I left out one thing, which, if you do it right, is just, it'll bring down the house. Yeah. It's just one of those things where one after the other and after the other, and then you get this huge release, and it's just, I, I love it. So it's, it, I, I've laughed a lot in Cymbeline. Mm-hmm. Uh, tragical, comical, historical. Uh, the heart is the conflict between Britain and Rome over tribute. Uh, and totally unsurprisingly, Shakespeare got this plot from his old favorite historical plot source we've mentioned, Holoshed's Chronicles. And I'm going to turn it over to Aubrey to tell us about that. Um, yeah. All I have to say about that is that uh, um, apart from the early modern period, the Iron Age uh, in Celtic Britain is one of my favorite periods, mostly due to a series of books by an author named Amanda Scott, who wrote about the Boudicca, who is one of my queen heroes. Um, but Cymbeline uh, is sort of a bastardization of the name Cunabellan, a real-life Celtic king in AD 10 to 40-ish in that period uh, during the first Roman invasion of Britain. And this, of course, you know, this time of transition and being taken over and struggles with between kings is uh, obviously got resonance with Jacobean politics. Um, yeah. yeah, you guys, that's what I got. I literally two days ago, gave a presentation on the Hollandshed sources for this play. Well, why aren't you talking about this stuff? I don't know, but he asked me. I didn't well, know chime was in the, then. Yeah, I'm, I was like pulling up my notes. I'm just a stick figure cartoonist masquerading <laughs> as someone who knows what they're talking about. You you go ahead and give us the real dirt. In the Hollandshed, the, the Cymbeline analog, Hollandshed calls him a king, quote, brought up at Rome and there made knight by Augustus Caesar, under whom he served in the wars. Cymbeline is supposed to have been reluctant to break with Rome because the Romans taught the Britons, quote, to behave themselves like civil men and to attain the knowledge of feats of war. So it's all about war all the time. In the Hollandshed, the posthumous analog is called Brute or maybe Brute. And just like in the play, his ancestry is uncertain, right? So uh, I think in that very first scene with the old man and the boy, they say, you know, oh, we could not delve him to the root. Like, we don't know where he comes from. And that's the same in the Hollandshed as well. So Hollandshed acknowledges that the posthumous analog Brute is descended from the Trojan Aeneas, but he can't decide whether Aeneas is Brute's great-grandfather or his great-great-grandfather. And he also can't decide the name of his Brute's father, that could be either Silvius or Julius. He's like, nah, we don't know. We don't know where this guy comes from. Um, Imogen shows up in the Hollandshed twice in the 1577 version and three times in the 1587 version. Both texts print her as Imogen with two N's. Um, and all of her mentions so annoyingly just relate her to her husband, 
and they just they call her his wife Inogen. His wife Inogen did this, his wife Inogen did that, his wife Inogen did this other thing. Yeah, they'll do that, the patriarchy will. Yep. Rude. Yeah, it's, rude, it's fucking real. Rude, rude. So um, yeah. that's what I got. I can also tell you about Edward II, but I feel like I've eh. done that already from... I just I just love it that Shakespeare took it this far back. Like I know a uh, king the the historical King Lear kind of goes really far back into British history too. Yeah, and Macbeth. But I think yeah, but I think this one reaches this one reaches the farthest back. I think AD 10 yeah. is the the earliest kind of king that we've got here if we're looking at all of the kings on a line of British history. Yep. Like we go way way back for this one for this king yeah which i just is, i don't know why it's just fascinating to me well it's the first one in in the holland yeah. shed right it's the chronicles of all of ireland and scotland and england and yeah we start with this guy well He's it's interesting because this is one of the this is one of the few plays that refers extensively to britain as opposed to england yeah, which right. looking at jacobian politics with james coming to the throne is very interesting to think about mm-hmm. how that related and maybe they were looking he was looking for sources for back when it was a Britain as opposed to four separate countries. Yeah. Mm, yeah. So, yeah, there's lots of interesting historical things there, which I have totally not read up on. So moving on. <laughs> Casual, comical, historical, pastoral. So, yeah, uh, you've touched on this before with like As You Like It and Winter's Tale, where court characters have to leave the court and and go into the countryside to discover themselves and resolve all their problems. And that happens here, too. Uh, Imogen goes to Wales, which is lovely, uh, and spends time hanging out in cave with rustic hunter brother people. And she has this sort of transformative experience before she can then return and resume her identity at court. So uh, long story short, Cymbeline is tragical, historical, comical, pastoral. Polonius would have loved it. It rocks. I mean, there's not really there's some there's some pretty funky plays in Shakespeare, but I don't think there's one that hits all four of those quite so solidly as Cymbeline. Nope. True. It's probably right. why it's so hard to condense in a summary, yes. too, because it's yes. all over the fucking place. It really is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I love Imogen. I think she's she's just a fantastic character. Uh, I had a friend, uh, Kate Rosansky, who called her the tragic heroine who lives, which I think is great because nice. uh, she manages to avoid every opportunity to die in this play, of which there are a lot. She's sharp enough not to be fooled by um, the Queen and Clotten, who are trying to honey-talk her uh, into going along with their plans. Uh, she's not tricked by Iacomo when he comes and tries to put his moves on her. She is When, when Pisanio tells her that Posthumus wants her dead because he thinks she's been unfaithful, she doesn't kill herself like she's very upset but she doesn't actually like try to kill herself uh, when accused she keeps going uh, when she wakes up next to what she thinks is the body of her husband she also does not kill herself even though that would be a fantastic opportunity it's certainly something that Juliet would do uh, but she just keeps on going uh, and she manages to survive all the confusion and the battle in the end and she just keeps on going a big part of this is I recently read uh, Harriet Walter's book Brutus and Other Heroines and she has a uh, essay in there about when she played Imogen and how Imogen is constantly transforming herself to um, respond to the situation that she's in so uh, she tra- transforms herself she disguises herself from a princess into a commoner in order to escape her father's court and meet her husband when that doesn't work out she transforms herself into a boy in order I think the plan is that she's going to go 
and find her husband and sort of see him and see like, well, what's up? Why did he suddenly accuse me of adultery? So she's proactively trying to solve her problems by dressing up as a boy. But then, you know, she gets lost and, and she needs to survive. So she transforms herself into this housekeeper for these random cave dwellers that she just happens to stumble across and you know she cooks for them and 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 cleans house for them uh so she transforms herself into a, a resident of that household and then after dying and literally coming back to life again she transforms herself into this page boy and ends up serving the romans so it's it's uh it's interesting to see all the different ways in which she transforms in order to survive and keep going. And that's why I think she's just a fascinating character. She has a lot more agency than a lot of Shakespeare's uh, heroines. And I think she rocks. I think that's a strong case. Yeah, no argument. I here. enjoy her. Yeah. Finally, I just want to, well, not finally. I have more things. <laughs> uh, okay, the language. So I, when, I, when I said I was going to come on this podcast to do Cymbeline, it's like, oh, crap. I don't know really. I don't really know anything about Cymbeline, so I put out a call to my friends. You know, let me know what you think about Cymbeline. And I, I had several actors uh, of my actor friends come back, and they told me, you know, the verse is really irregular and challenging. It's it breaks out of the standard iambic pentameter mode a lot. And um, I was trying to find a quote, and I found uh, Michael Pennington wrote about it. Uh, he said, "Cymbeline is in many ways unique. It's certainly uniquely odd." and fantastically elaborate in diction as well as narrative. It should be the most heavily annotated text in the canon. Open every page and there are unmetrical passages of such experimental naughtiness that it is almost impossible to pull a meaning from them. It's as if Shakespeare were taking a series of hairpin bends at 60 miles an hour. And I think that's, you know, I, I don't have an actor background when I'm looking at the text that doesn't all pop out at me, but when you listen to it, when you listen to the text, it, it is dense. It is packed. There is a lot going on there. And I think that makes Cymbeline particularly interesting. And finally, I'd like to say something especially for Jess. She's not alone in, in, in disliking parts of Cymbeline. Yeah. Um, let Ooh, me find buckle it. up. Here we go. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I got, I got this, this here. Uh, Samuel Johnson... The great Sam, Dr. Johnson. Oh, uh, oh I know it, exactly what you're about yes. to read because we heard it in class on Friday. That's right. To remark the folly of the fiction were to waste criticism upon unresisting imbecility, <laughs> upon faults too evident for detection and too gross for aggravation. So that, that is uh, Samuel Johnson. Uh, George Bernard Shaw uh, says, It is for the most part stagey trash of the lowest melodramatic order. <laughs> In parts abominably written, throughout intellectually vulgar, and judged in point of thought by modern intellectual standards, vulgar, foolish, offensive, indecent, and exasperating beyond all tolerance. And so, yeah. And George Bernard Shaw also rewrote most of the fifth act. So I think, yeah, <laughs> well, Jess, that might be something for you to look into. Yeah, he's not alone um, there. People love to rewrite Shakespeare. <laughs> but, uh, but on Cymbeline's side, Tennyson loved Cymbeline so much that he was apparently buried with a copy of it, which wow. I think shows his excellent good wow. there. That's some commitment. So, yeah. Yeah. So that's that's all the sort of fun stuff I had to barf up about Cymbeline. I think it's a really <laughs> super fun play. It all totally right. is. Although to to throw some context in, Shaw didn't just hate Cymbeline, like he kinda hated all of Shakespeare. Yeah. So yeah. like take it with a grain of salt, listeners. George Bernard Shaw did not care for Shakespeare pretty much at all. <laughs> I, don't, 
I don't know which other ones he tried to actively rewrite, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He hated Cymbeline extra. Yeah. <laughs> He's I like, hate this is Shaw, extra bad. So there's that. <laughs> oh, I don't. I like I like Shaw. Girl, you know I hate everything that was written after 1642. So that's true. I know. So particular. Yeah, really modern elitists. <laughs> let's play a game, shall we? Yeah, let's do it. So it's game time. It's game time. Uh, and this week we're playing Choices Were Made, which we haven't done in a while. I don't even remember last time we did this. Um, Twelfth Night, maybe? It's been a while. Yeah, um, because we're so into line roulette, but like, that's fine. So it's Choices Were Made and... We're just going to trade stories of the good, the bad, and the ugly production choices we've seen from this play. And when I say we are going to trade stories, I mean Aubrey and Mia are going to play trade stories because I've never seen this. And no one wants to hear me complain about the production that we were in. So take it away, you guys. Yeah, so we'll just go back and forth. And we always, of course, finish with a choice. That was a choice. Well, that was a choice. Okay, go ahead. Tell right, us so, about that movie. Yeah, in in preparation for this, because I'm a very diligent podcast guest, I Goodness. watched the uh, Ethan Hawke film adaptation of mm. Cymbeline, mm. Uh, which resets Cymbeline uh, in modern-day urban place in which the Britons and the Romans are like competing drug gangs. And this came out a year or two ago and I thought it looked terrible then, but my general approach to Shakespeare adaptation is, you know, I'm glad they exist. Even if I don't like it, I'm glad they exist. So this one really sort of pushed that for me. Uh, it was terrible. Um, <laughs> like, like everything about it was terrible. I don't believe there was a single redeeming feature. It stripped all the joy and humor out of it. And then, did not do the non-joyful, non-humorous part very well either. So it was <laughs> ghastly. Have either of you seen it? Nope. I watched the trailer. I had meant to make time to watch it this week so that you and I could really back and forth about it. But I saw the trailer and the I was trailer like... The trailer is sufficient. Mm. The, the trailer is over in two minutes, so it is far superior to the <laughs> <laughs> I also read the some of the Amazon reviews Ooh, of this movie, amazing. which were scathing um let me see if i can pull some up like, really it's fast. it's not just that it's a bad shakespearean adaptation which it's just a bad movie like it doesn't work as a movie on its own it's just like the 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 text cutting is bad it's completely incomprehensible in many parts even if you know the story and it's just how, how do they solve the problem of beheading clotten they've got Guns, first of all, so I'm really confused. Like, the, like Guderius has a rifle and Clotten has a gun, and then they cut away, and then like Belarius comes back and and Guderius has the head, and he's like, <laughs> I cut a head off with the sword that he was using to attack me. And you're like, he had a gun. <laughs> he didn't cut his head off with a gun, and yeah, and that that was it. And the, the, it was so badly put together, you barely knew who Clotten was at that at that point. It was just, it was sad. That's a wow. Rough day. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So some of the really stellar Amazon reviews of this, like the one stars, and I think if there were a chance for zero stars, they would take it. <laughs> this one says, if you thought Cloverfield was bad, you ain't seen this disaster yet. It gots nothing and it goeth nowhere. <laughs> and that's just the title of the review. Oh, wow. That's just... <laughs> it says, surely this movie stinketh. As Shakespeare would speaketh, if you ever thought of buying this item, 
send me the money instead and I can donate it to my favorite charity. And this way you won't be throwing your hard-earned wages down the drain. Wow. <laughs> oh my God. It, it, it was, I, I can't, I, I watched it with a friend, Kate Pitt, who was good enough to sit through it with me. Hey, uh, hi, Kate. Yeah, hi, Kate. Love you. Uh, it wasn't even good bad. You know, some movies are really bad. They're enjoyable. It was just right. solid, monotonous bad through the whole thing. And incompre- I, I thought it was incomprehensible. And even knowing the plot, it was just. Yeah. Yeah. My, um, my girl Emma here owns it. And it's been the topic of conversation for a couple of Friday night dinners in a row because we we have this class on Cymbeline last week, this week, two days ago, whatever. And in class on Friday, we were talking about how to stage some of the problems. And I was like, what do they do in the movie? And she was like, I don't know. I've never finished it. Good. (laughs) Oh, God. Because my friend Emma knows what's up. Shout out to Emma, who is a smart cookie. (laughs) Just walk away, girl. Just walk away. Right, and it's got who else is in it? It's uh, Ed Ed Harris. Is that who that is? Ed Harris. Ed Harris. There and are the, some there are some decent actors in there. Yeah, and yeah. The, the kid from Gossip Girl. It was yeah. just. It was just. And, uh, like, and Posthumus was a skater guy. He was like <laughs> skating everywhere, and it, it just pointlessly and <laughs> everything everything was terrible. Like, are you gonna for, go off to war on a skateboard? What? Yeah. He was like to Italy, skating to Italy on his skateboard. Um, <laughs> wow, I only said that as like facetiously. That's literally what they did. Uh, yeah, he's just like going off oh, on good his God. skateboard into exile. <laughs> uh, well, uh, yeah, so that's, were made. Choices were definitely made. Uh, the last time I saw this show, it was aesthetically a hybrid between like. Lord of the Rings creatures, but also Wicked with like a dash of Snow White. Uh, they really played up the fairy tale and there was like AstroTurf to be grass all over the stage. What? Um, yeah, nice. it was like grassy and it was, um, I mean, full disclosure, it was Oregon Shakespeare Festival in their outdoor Allen Pavilion. When so was that this? huge outdoor space. Uh, I was like five or six years ago, I want to say like okay. 2012, 2013. Okay. And their queen was literally like in purple. She looked like the evil queen from Snow White. Um, Jupiter was not Jupiter so much as she was Kate Blanchett from the Lord of the Rings. <gasps> kind of with like the elf oh, ears and that's everything. A choice. Dr. Cornelius was a satyr, if I have that right. If I have my mythological creatures right, that's the goat man. Yes. Yep. yep. Like a goatee creature yep. yeah, yeah that was dr cornelius and other like supporting characters and lords and stuff were like foresty type of creatures the likes of which last time i saw them were were in a production of wicked um like you know hybrid animal people in clothes and stuff like that it was bizarre but also i mean i get where they were going with it because they really 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 wanted to be like this is a fairy tale you see you see how much of a fairy tale oh, this is it's such a fairy tale there's definitely precedent for that because i read about peter hall's production at the rsc in i think 1950s where he did the same thing it was very uh grim's fairy tale sort of thing with evil queen costumes and forest and and, and straight out the storybook sort of thing so that seems to be a choice that gets made yeah definitely a very common choice yeah, yeah. So, I've seen two live productions. How many have you seen? Just the one, or I have seen. I think it was just the one. I think it was just that one. Because I made very, a big impression on me. I'm yeah. really curious about 
setting, like time period setting of this, because the two productions I saw were both set in Elizabethan garments. Yeah, the uh, the OSF one was like medieval. It was pre early. It was like Ivanhoe, kind of. Yeah, if you so they remember they that movie more, from the eighties. Yeah, yeah, dark ages kind of. Yeah, no, the yeah. ones I've seen are both in Elizabethan, but at least this one of them, the Romans were wearing classical Roman Empire armor. Hmm. Uh, so it's interesting sort of dichotomy because in the play we've got the dark age Britain, but then the Italians are they're Italians, you know, they're very. Right. Uh, renaissance and so there's this sort of weird disconnect between time and place in the in the play anyways so i'm always interested to see how it's set apparently uh when the globe did it recently they retitled it imogen and it was set oh, yeah. in it was set in modern day london and again there were like drug biker gangs Damn. yeah i don't know why that seems to keep <laughs> happening to Cymbeline, because when i think of Cymbeline, i don't think drug biker gangs but then maybe i just have a very limited vision <laughs> I just don't know how we jump from fairy tale to like dystopian drug lord no. lords and stuff. Like where where does that how can you how can a bunch of people look at the same play and get two like wildly different things from it? Is Shakespeare I guess the magic of, I know the joy of theater. Yeah, it's the magic of anything with them. I guess. But like those two things in particular are the yeah. things that people seem to glom onto. That's weird. Okay. Well, that's our game. Choices were made. Those are the choices. You judge them. We did. Mm -hmm, so. Mm -hmm. Should we gossip? Yup. So, yeah, what are you working on these days? I'm drawing Shakespeare stick figure comics. <laughs> Shockingly Yay. enough. So I'm weird. currently working on a scene-by-scene -scene adaptation of Midsummer Night's Dream, which is pretty fun. Yeah. That's about it. I mean, I just did a, a local Ignite talk uh, event where I had five minutes to talk. And so I summarized all of Shakespeare's plays in five minutes, which and was a lot of fun. It involved a lot of hyperventilating. Fire. It was, it was yeah, so good. It was, what is that, an Ignite talk? Is that like a TED talk kind of thing? Or? The, the format is that uh, you have five minutes and you have 20 slides. And after 15 seconds, each slide automatically advances. You can't do anything to stop it oh so you have to time your talk to match up with the automatically rotating slides and so i had uh two plays per slide which is about seven seconds per play and that was fun yeah yeah wow. so that's probably the most exciting thing i've done lately other than that it's just at the old comic grindstone yeah and that that talk is on youtube yeah so we can yes, we can throw a link it, up it and people yeah, can watch I, it I've, if you haven't already watched yeah. it because it's amazing Sounds amazing. I, I'm ashamed to say I have not been able to watch it yet. Sorry. Um, I, I make it to the end without dying. So how can our listeners find out more about you? You're on social media. You've have, you have a website. Can you say those out loud, please? Yes, I can. My website <laughs> is goodticklebrain.com. Uh, and my social media is goodticklebrain on most respectable social media platforms. So Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, I'm at Instagram, I'm at goodticklebrain on all of those things. What about nice. the disrespectable media outlets? Where are you on those? Oh, I'm not even sure. Like Pinterest? <laughs> mean? I mean, I'm mostly <laughs> making a joke, but yeah. <laughs> Throwing shade at Pinterest. Oh, uh, and if, if you if you like Shakespeare comics, you can support me on Patreon at patreon.com slash goodticklebrain. Huzzah. Can I also just like plug 
Keep Calm and Muslim On and Sketchy Beta because I'm obsessed with both of those also. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I also, despite being extremely busy, decided to start two side comics up. So I have Keep Calm and Muslim On, which I uh, co-author with a Muslim American friend of mine. And I have Sketchy Beta, which is stories from my uh, rock climbing other life that I have going on. And they're both can be found at goodticklebrain.com. That's great. So we will definitely put links to all of those and tag you on all of the things um, so that our listeners can find you through us. So there's that. Um, Another bit of gossip, and this just happened to me yesterday, so I'm still fresh about it. I saw King John at the Folger, and I have feelings about it. First of all, I used to work in the box office of the American Shakespeare Center, so I know how special it can be when a patron writes a like a genuine comment in their order and asks you for something or like this one time we had a patron who in her comments literally just said i'm having a shitty day can you please draw me a dinosaur or something and like and first of all we were like burr that's weird but then we were like well she's having a shitty day so everybody who was in the box office that day for that order for will call like drew a dinosaur on her ticket and she came in and saw it and like it made her day. So knowing that when I ordered my tickets for King John a couple weeks ago online, I put in the comments, this is my Canon completion play. I'm so excited to see it. I cannot wait. I'll see you in November. I showed up at will call to pick up my tickets. They greeted me with like, they were like, Oh my God, you're the Canon completer. And they gave me a sign that said completer. They gave me a crown a big shiny like Burger King plastic crown and they gave me and my two friends who came with me free drink vouchers for the intermission. Um, and they took my picture in front of their little statue of puck right out in front of the, of the theater. And that was super special. And I, I'm so grateful to the Folger library and the lovely people at the box office paying that kind of thing forward. Cause I know that that made my day. Um, and I know that it's out of the ordinary and, you know, giving somebody else a gift like that. I know that that makes your day too, because it would have made mine. So thank you then. Okay. So this show, they did like this introductory prologue thing where all of the characters, Jess, it was really similar to like what we had to do for our small scale shows. Um, oh, right. Got where, it. where, where people, where everybody comes out and is like, this is the setup of this play. I play this character and I play this character and this is how they're connected. They did that for King John. I did not feel like I needed that, but I am not a normal Shakespeare audience member. Yeah, you have right? two that, master's degrees. You don't right, need yeah, anything. Right, yeah, I'm not, I'm not the person that they're catering to. So I, you know, so it was, eh, you know, it it did what it was supposed to do. I think pe- some people felt like they needed it. They did make a little commentary on like how awesome some of the lady characters are. And the girl playing Blanche was like, well, you know, Blanche was actually really cool, except this whole play is just about who she marries and how pretty she is. Don't we all relate to that, ladies? And like every woman in that room went, uh-huh, yeah, girl. And so so that was kind of a cool thing. So then then it got to the like one or two battle scenes that are at all in King John, and they like darkened the house and they used the these little flashlight things that illuminated their faces. Um, and they spliced a bunch of different battle cry lines like cry havoc and let's slip the dogs of war and turn hellhound and like they took a bunch of battle cries from all of the the rest of the canon and kind of threw that in there and so there was no literal battling and no combat just Uh, some like 
Yeah, there was just some like red backlighting and everybody was kind of staged in a proscenium picture and then their faces lit up when they said these words and you could hear in the sound effects like crash, crash, you know, whatever, battle, battle. I still don't know how I feel about that because I love me some combat. I am always sad when productions cheap out on the combat. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it also, but it did help the production move at a faster clip. I mean, King John's not the longest history play anyway, but it kept the pace up, but... So I, I have kind of mixed feelings about that, but that is a thing that they did. They also, everyone was dressed in like a vaguely Edwardian, but sort of hoboish waiting for Godot kind of costume, like with bowler hats, but like baggy pinstriped pants. Um, it was a strange costume aesthetic that I can't figure out, but I, I think I liked it. I don't know. I'm just kind of disposed to like it because it was a really nice experience for me personally. But I will say this. There was really awesome thematic doubling of Arthur and young Henry, John's son. I love that. Yeah, it was great. And the young woman who played that part, those parts, was unbelievable. She was, she just disappeared into that role. Like she, I mean, she's already kind of a diminutive um, uh, in stature. And so she looked very much like a little boy. They dressed her kind of in oversized clothes to help with that. And they cut her hair short. But she was a scared little boy the whole time and like when the adults were fighting and like france and england are fighting about this kid and talking about him right in front of him like he is literally just curled up in the fetal position sitting on the throne crying and some of the scenes later with hubert uh, and when hubert finds him dead oh my god there's this moment where he's just like hubert's cradling the lifeless body of this child and he like leans his head on the kid and like there was not a dry eye in the house it was very powerful so that was really cool and then kate eastwood norris plays the bastard she plays philip the bastard and we've talked about her before and how incredible she is she was incredible again she was really great brought a lot of life and humor and i really see why everyone wants to play the bastard now um and why everybody likes the bastard because he's awesome um and so cheeky i hadn't realized you know just reading it and listening to it i hadn't realized how cheeky he was so those are my thoughts about that it was great for the most part I enjoyed myself, and now I have completed my canon. Hooray! It happened. It's a thing that happened. Oh, so that's my gossip this week. Cool. Well, the next thing on this list is some fucking nonsense. Some goddamn yeah. white nonsense out yep. of uh, North Carolina this week. There was a, a, I think, touring school production of Complete Works of Shakespeare Abridged, which is... Uh, the best play of all time ever basically <laughs> it's so good it's uh, pretty good yeah if you haven't seen it it's all of Shakespeare's plays done by three actors in two hours uh and it's by the reduced Shakespeare company yeah it's great it's so good and so it came to this North Carolina high school and people were like uh not okay with it because of R and J mostly, I think was was the issue um, with the the suicide. They were like, "That's not okay," and also because from what I, yeah, from what I understand, the students actually were texting school officials during that part of the play yeah. and being like, "There's drinking, there's suicide," and then I also heard reports that they were shouting uh, homophobic slurs at the actors because it's all male cast and Romeo and Juliet do kiss, right. and apparently that prompted some very unacceptable words from the students yeah and the superintendent like shut it down i read this article once you put the link up like he shut it down midway through the show 
because of all of the texts he was getting during the show. Yeah. And then there was like a prayer meeting outside the school afterwards. Y'all don't do this. Don't don't be this way. There's so many layers of wrong yeah. in this story that I can't even begin to unpick them all. Yeah. Yep. So just yeah. just that happened. There's a a news story that I guess Aubrey can throw up on the the landing page of our website if you want to read it. Also, you can Google. So just you know, it happened. We know about it. It makes us angry. Let's move on. But it's like a really <sighs> good segue into the dick bracket. Yes. So let's yes, let's indeed. talk about dicks and get the fuck out of here. Yep. Dick time. <laughs> Sorry. Alrighty. So last week uh, in the dick bracket, it was Proteus versus that nice King Lear. Uh, Proteus won in not much, not as much of a landslide as I expected, and Lear held his own for a long time, but uh, Proteus took it. So he's moving on into the third round. And uh, I definitely voted for Proteus. Yeah. Most yeah. people did. <laughs> You know, he's a dick. He's yep. he's a dick. He is is a dick. he a bigger dick than King Lear? Uh, well, you all have spoken yeah. yes. So yeah. there it is. Yeah. Can Jack you tell can... us why? Can you tell us why? Oh, yeah. Uh, why? He for... ditches his girlfriend and kidnaps his best friend's girlfriend and threatens to rape her in the woods. Yeah. That's pretty dickish. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to argue yeah. with it. Yeah. And he doesn't even have the excuse of being like old and senile like King Lear does. <laughs> so true but also i would watch that version of the play <laughs> old and senile proteus yeah, and right? valentine like what if they're not the two gentlemen of verona they're the two like <laughs> retirees of verona <laughs> trying to get the their two second wives yeah <laughs> i would watch that wow. play i would watch the shit out of that play uh, definitely yeah Okay, well, congratulations, Proteus. You're advancing to round three of our dick bracket. Uh, this week, though, we've got Edmund, the sexy, sexy bastard from King Lear, and uh, versus the brothers Malfi. You remember those brothers? They were the ones who, you know, conspired and uh, kind of paranoidly um, to murder her, their sister and, like, manipulate her and lock her up. Oh, and one of them thought he was a werewolf. So... So there you go. Two versus one. Edmund versus the uh, Brothers Malfi. Who will triumph? I don't know. That's going to be a rough one. It is. I mean, they're both terrible. I mean, Edmund, you know, does pretty terrible things, too. He he tries to get his dad to kill his brother, and he tries to get these two sisters to kill each other, and, and then they both they do both end up dying, and like, he does some terrible shit. So these are some manipulating jerks in this round. You have any opinions, Mia? I don't know. I've, I've never seen Malfi. So I don't feel really qualified to weigh on on this, but um, I, I would probably have to look up the, the final death tolls and, and do some number crunching to make my mm. choice here. Mm. Okay. Throw in some quantitative data. Right. right. That's Hard reasonable. Facts. Yeah. That's really, that is very reasonable and logical. <laughs> so, but that's, that's the matchup is that uh, Edmund versus those Malfi brothers. So there that is. Uh, thank you, everyone, so much for listening. We hope you leave this podcast more informed than when you started. And thank you so much, Mia, for joining us. We really, really appreciate you being here. Thanks for having me. It's super fun. Come back anytime. We are we are just really glad. Thank you for your time and, yeah. and generosity and, and all of the work that you did. Absolutely. So tune in next week for apparently Richard II 101. That's 
Great, that's what we're doing next week. <laughs> I have feelings about Richard II, too, guys. Oh, man. I mean, oh, man. you want a guest host next week, and I'll take the week <laughs> off. I'm fine with that. If you liked this podcast, subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or Google Play. For show notes and other fun things, you can visit our website at www.hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. Or you can drop us an email at holla at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can find us on Instagram at hurlyburlyshakes. Or at hurlyburlyshake on Twitter. The Hurley Burley Shakespeare Show was produced and edited by Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock. Our fantastic theme music was composed by Jonathan Shu. You can learn more about him at jonathanshu.com or find his albums on iTunes. All opinions you heard on this podcast are our own and are not at all affiliated with our institutions of work and or study. I'll be revenged. His meanest garment. Well... <laughs> Love it. That Clotten. Yeah. What a guy. Uh, Whamlet out. Hamlet out. It's been six months since I've been on the road. Got out of jail six months ago. I feel like I'm knocking on Satan's door. Cause to tell the truth, I can't take it no more. Well, then, Jess, if you're ready with the recording oh, software. Girl, I've been recording for like five minutes already. Oh, oh shit. Okay. Yeah, That's I wanted stealthy. I wanted to have some some good B-roll. I don't know if we got any, Great. but, I don't, you know. <laughs> Leave know. that. Just, just us saying, yeah, over and over again. <laughs> <laughs>